This morning, as we approach the Word of God today, I'm going to be starting a series today, uh, a series called A Spirit of Generosity. And I recognize that in doing that, that oftentimes our minds instantly run to money, and I want you to understand that that's not necessarily the case. I've been reading and studying for the past several months a study that was done by Tim Keller over the book of Luke, and I really want to credit him for much of what's going to be coming out of this series from some things that he had begun to unlock some truths of. And um, I want you to know that the spirit of generosity within our life has a lot more to do than just with finances. In fact, the Bible tells us that we need to be radically generous down to the root of our heart, which means that there will be a pervasive generosity that will be characterized in the way that we live by an unselfish service in every single area of our life, in every area. And so I want you to know that the Scripture speaks of many different currencies as it relates uh, to our life. And a currency is simply this, a medium of exchanging value. And there is more than one kind of currency within our life. For instance, it's possible for an individual to write a check to an organization to do so with the understanding that I will give you money, but do not ask me to get in emotionally involved in what you are doing, indicating to them that the, their emotional life, their emotional uh, aspect is more important than the currency of money to them. And so there's an emotional currency. Uh, others may write a check to an organization and say, here's the deal, I'll give you money, but don't ask me to get involved in any way because my time is a more valuable currency to me than the things that I have or my money, thereby demonstrating that we may not necessarily have a radically generous spirit when it relates to all things. And so there's different currencies in our life that I want to address, as Jesus did within the Gospel of Luke. So today I want to at attach the subject to Scripture or move in the area of relational generosity. Relational generosity. There are plenty of people who are generous in certain ways but are not generous on the inside. And I believe that most of you probably know who you are because as you look at people around you, you look at some and there are groups of people that you hold at arm's length or you just disdain. And we live in a country right now that is unbelievably divided because of the way we look at people. There are some of you who have uh, aspects of, of groups of people that you criticize and, and, and you are exacting and you are completely ungenerous relationally. You don't give people the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps you're one of those that relationally you give people one chance to make a good impression on you and if they don't measure up to whatever standard you may hold them to, then you write them off and you will not engage them and so relationally you find yourself very ungenerous and now that we understand a little bit about what relational generosity is there is a specific form of relational generosity that the Bible has a lot to say about it's a general it's a relational generosity that must characterize all Christian believers and that is forgiveness forgiveness if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn to Luke, chapter 17. And I'm going to read this morning verses 3 through 10. Luke, chapter 17, verses 3 through 10. And then I'm going to ask that you would keep your Bibles open to that because we're going to begin to unpack this passage a little bit. 
So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants and we've only done our duty. Father, I ask that through your Holy Spirit's help that you would begin to enlighten us as to the truth of your word as it relates to the aspect of general generosity, but specifically generosity relationally and in the area of forgiveness and we pray this in Jesus name amen there are people that are out there and because of the way they have treated you you are sitting here today thinking they owe me you might hold it over them you might be more demanding of them or maybe you just keep it as a chip in your pocket so that whenever it gets to a point where you don't think that they are treating you the way you should. You pull this out and you say, do I need to remind you of what you have done or what you have said to hurt me? And in doing so, you use this as a manipulative tool to get your own way. But that is not being generous because generous means that you release, that you let it go, that you forgive. And I want to talk about that because it's one of the most important characteristics of being a child of God is that we as a follower of Christ would learn to be people that forgive. And Jesus uses this passage of Scripture to masterfully begin to unlock for us what generosity looks like in the area of our relationships. And there are three things that I want to address today. And if you have a bulletin, we've outlined some of those things for you to begin to jot down some notes on. And we're going to look at the enormity of forgiveness the practice of forgiveness and the key to forgiveness. First of all, the enormity of forgiveness. In verses 4 and 5 of this scripture, it says that if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, I love this aspect because I've often said that in studying the disciples, we are, we are studying people who are just like us. They respond and react just like us. And so Jesus is beginning to explain to them the depth and the, the massive nature of forgiveness. And when they hear it, their first response to him is, increase our faith, which really means, if we were to put it in modern day language today, which means, I can never do that. I, I can't do what you are asking. It is so far beyond me that I don't think I'm capable of that kind of response to people who have wronged me. 
And within this, there are two things that Jesus is saying. First of all, I want you to notice the enormity of the challenge of this. It is a huge challenge. Because in Scripture, the number seven is a symbolic number. To Jewish people, it means completeness, fullness, perfection. In other words, there is no more possible. So if somebody was inviting you over to dinner in Jewish days and they said, hey, we're about to have a, 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 feast, a feast and we're going to have fish and I want you to eat seven fish. Now, they're not telling you that you have to strictly limit yourself to that. What they are saying is, I want you to eat so much at this feast that eating another bite is not possible. I want there to be complete and total fullness when you leave here. And so when Jesus says to someone that if someone comes to you seven times in a day and asks for forgiveness, that you must forgiveness, we get sidetracked on the number seven because we're thinking, you know what? At about number six, I'm beginning to believe they don't really mean it. At about number four, I'm thinking, if they keep coming back with this again, I don't think that their repentance is real. You begin to think, I don't think they're sorry at all. And so we can get sidetracked by what Jesus is really saying. And, and here's what Jesus really meant, and, and let, me just, let me just warn you, it's worse than you think. Just want to throw that out there right at, right at the beginning. What Jesus is saying is this. If a person wrongs you as completely and as fully as it is possible for a person to wrong another human being, you must forgive them. And so I want you this morning to imagine the worst thing possible that anybody could do to you. And likely we are all probably thinking of different things because we all have different aspects that we know we're vulnerable in. Imagine the worst thing that is so bad that at least in your mind, nothing could be any worse than this kind of a wrong to you. And Jesus says to you today, if you're my follower, if you're a disciple and somebody wrongs you like that, you must forgive them. And with that statement from Jesus, you can understand then why the disciples would look at him and say, increase my faith. Basically, it's, Lord, we're not capable of this. I think it's impossible. The enormity of the challenge is visible, but I also want you to see that we can't shrink from the enormity of the challenge. We can't say that it's impossible and simply because we don't believe that we're capable of it, simply dismiss it and move on from there as if that is a command that we are not capable of living and doing. And the reason that we can't shrink from the enormity of this challenge is because of the enormity of the danger that awaits us if we do. There's a little phrase in the very first few words of the chapter that we read in verse 3 that says this, so watch yourselves. So watch yourself. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says that if somebody does something against you, if somebody wrongs you, if somebody hurts you, the first thing that he asks us to do is to watch ourselves. That's not usually what happens because I have to admit to you, and I, I told the worship team and our leadership team when we were praying this morning, I've been 
studying this passage for the past several, several weeks, and over the last two weeks, I've had more times when I've had to, to just sit back from the word process or the computer and the, put the pencil down, and I'm sitting there going, Lord, I'm about to speak on something that I've not yet perfected. In fact, I'm not even close. And I've had to say, I need you to begin to develop in my life the ability to take the truth of your word and, and with your help in some way begin to put it in a way that, that it's true for me as it is for everybody that's about to hear this. Because when people wrong us, our first response is not normally to, to guard ourselves or to watch ourselves, but it's to begin to attack them. Jesus said, my followers' first response will be watch yourself. David Bisgrove of, of, wrote of Tolstoy, who was a Russian writer who married a woman by the name of Sonia, that when they were dating, and they, they were a little bit older when they got married, and, and Tolstoy so loved her that he said, I am going to let you read all of the diaries that I have written throughout my whole life because I want you to fully know me when we marry. And, and in those diaries, he had lived a life that had been rather promiscuous and, and all of the... the uh, women that he had loved and the sexual balances that he had had, he wrote of those. And as she read those things in his diary to get to know him and preparing to, to live a married life, she became so bitter and angry at the things that he wrote there that 50 years later, 50 years later, one historian wrote of her when she was writing in her own diary of their life together. He said, 50 years later, jealousy and unforgiveness had blinded her and in the process had destroyed all of her love for her husband. And here's the way the Bible puts it in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And this is just what Jesus says. If somebody wrongs you, watch yourself because we have a tendency to allow bitterness to grow as a root within our life. And some of you are experiencing that and some of you know people who are living lives far less than the glory that God desires them because they've allowed bitter roots to enter into them and rather than dealing with an issue biblically, they choose to hang on to something and it ruins their life and not the lives of those who have wronged them. You see, anger will always say, I want justice. Anger always said, I hope they pay a high price for what they did to me. But if you hold on to anger, it will defile you. It's like hanging on to dry ice. While it's smoking, it's burning you. Tim Keller did a word study that I really enjoyed as he was going through this study. And he was looking at the word anger and where it came from. And, and he began to recognize it came from an old word called wrath. Wrath is an old word for anger, but out of that root word, there were some other words that he began to, to study that came from it that were really interesting. So wrath is an old word for anger, and then from that root comes the word wreath. Wreath is a set of branches or vines which has been twisted into a shape. Also from that word comes writhe, which is a human body that is twisting in different ways that do not seem natural. And also from that root comes the word wraith which is an old word for a ghost, but it's a particular kind of ghost. One who was wronged and after death is doomed to relive what that person has done to them for eternity because they were never able to forgive. And now 
their eternity and their future is completely destroyed as because of something that had happened in their past. And if you don't forgive when wrong, you will become distorted. You will become twisted. You will be formed into a shape that is not natural for you. And unforgiveness manifests itself most of the time in your life by being joyless. And your gradual distrust of others. You will begin to hold many people at arm's length and you won't let people in and you won't let them close because once you've been hurt and because you haven't forgiven, you will say, I'll never let anybody that close to me again. And relationally, you become very ungenerous. And that's terrible. And so Jesus says, watch yourself. Therefore, the enormity of the nature of forgiveness, because of the enormity, we cannot shrink from the enormity of the challenge of forgiving. The second thing that's pointed out in the scripture is the practice of forgiveness. How do we know how to do it? How do you practice forgiveness? We live in a psychological era. We live in a day and age today where the culture that we live in, feelings are the most important thing by far. What that means is somebody will have wronged someone else and the person that has been wronged will say to the others when they're saying, you should forgive them, they say, I can't forgive them. I'm still feeling angry. I'm still feeling this wound. I'm still feeling this hurt. And because my feelings are the most important thing within my culture, because I'm feeling this, I'm incapable of offering forgiveness until my feelings go away. And I want you to know something. Stop thinking that way because, yes, you can forgive. Because here's what the Bible says. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt and it's practiced before it's felt. So there's three things that you must do and, and they're all within this passage of Luke. First of all, when you are wronged and you're wondering how can I forgive, the first thing that you must do is refuse to characterize them and instead identify with them. That's sometimes a difficult thing to do is to look at somebody who has wronged you and say, you know what, I'm a whole lot more like them than I care to admit. We tend to emphasize the discontinuities between us and an individual that may have hurt us. And here's how Jesus brings this up. He says, if your brother or your sister sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So here's, here's what he's talking about. First of all, this is in the context in this particular passage of Christians wronging other Christians. And I want you to know that there are a lot of people that leave churches because a Christian hurt them. Many of the hurts that we carry around with us are because people that we know and love in the family of God have said and done something. You know why? Because they're human. None of us have reached the stage of perfection yet. And so Jesus first addresses this in the context of the family of God. And he says, listen, remember, this is a brother or this is a sister that you're dealing with. You have a common family here. And so he recognizes the first thing that we need to do is don't talk about the discontinuities. Look at what you have in common. But the Bible doesn't simply say, because oftentimes we would say, well, you know what, the person that wronged me is not a Christian. So since the scripture is, is quiet about that, I feel I've got the right then to hold this grudge. But that's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, in Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus states this. 
And when you're standing praying, in other words, when you think you're being most holy, when you think that you're in your most quiet times of communicating with me, if you're holding anything against anyone, this isn't just the family of God now. This includes all of humanity. Forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So this isn't just a Christian principle that, you know, we only work out in the church. If, if you want to forgive someone, you must stress what you have in common. If they're not believers, then you know that at least you have humanity in common. Miroslav Volp puts it this way in his book on forgiveness. Forgiveness flounders when I exclude my offender from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So there's two ways to remind yourself that you are the same as the person who has wronged you. Number one, you are both sinners. It is impossible to stay angry with somebody unless you feel deep down inside that you're just a little bit superior to them. Unless deep down inside you think, I am not capable of doing to somebody else what they just did to me. And slowly there's a pharisaical attitude that begins to rise up within us as we think, I could never do that. And as a result of that, we have excluded ourselves in our own mind from being in the community of sinners. And thus we begin to think we've got a right to hold a grudge. The second part of that is remember that you're both humans. Human being is complex being, and we are made in the image of God with great dignity and worth. And so remembering that we both are sinners and human and we have that in common allows us to at least look on common ground with the one who has wronged us. And so our initial reaction doesn't have to be to diminish them. And here's what often happens. We like to characterize people by what they have done to us. And here's the way it sounds. If somebody has lied to you and hurt you, they instantly become what? You are a liar. And we diminish them to their sin against us. If somebody has cheated against you, you are a cheater. And we identify them by the hurt that they've wronged us with. If they have stolen from you, you are a thief. And we diminish them. And we identify them with the role that they used to hurt us and the currency that they took from us in that nature. But if you get caught in a lie, yes, it was wrong, but you know what? It's a, it's a complex situation. I'm not really a liar. Don't diminish me to that role. And you must stop it. And you must bring yourself down and include yourself in the communities of both humanity and sinners. And the next part of this is the heart of the practice of forgiveness, and that's this. You have to inwardly surrender your right to repayment and pay the debt yourself. Let me repeat that for those of you writing it down. You have to inwardly surrender your right to repayment and pay the debt yourself. 
The word forgive that Jesus uses within this particular passage, and there was a number of different words that he could have chosen, but in this particular passage, it, the, the word specifically means releasing a person from a financial debt. So if you have loaned a person $1,000 and, and you forgive them of that debt, what happens? You eat it. It's your loss. You're the one that lets them off the hook. And so, ladies, let me put it this way for you. If you buy a beautiful dress and you are going out on the evening and somebody comes along and, and spills something on your dress and stains it and they're going, oh, please, let me help you clean it up or can I give you money from it? And you look at them and you go, no, 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 no. It's okay, it's okay. What you're saying to them is that you will absorb the loss. The loss is mine. I'll absorb this. Because when there's a wrong, either they pay or you absorb the loss, but the debt doesn't just go away. Somebody pays it. Most wrongs are not of the financial kind. Most are because somebody has robbed you of your reputation or of your honor or of your dignity or of an opportunity or of happiness or security, and you've been robbed of your joy in some way. So what does that mean then to make them repay? Oftentimes in our minds it means this, you made me unhappy, I'm going to make you unhappy. You damaged my reputation, I'm going to ruin your reputation. And so the currency that they hurt you with is the currency that you then want them to have to repay you with. And you seek ways within your life to make sure that that is done. And it's possible that you could go before them and you could tell them off and you could make them feel bad. Or you can go to others and begin to whisper about them and start to ruin their reputation by gossip and criticism of them. The third way is not to do anything outwardly, but inwardly. And I have to tell you, this one's going to hurt. Inwardly, you root against them. Have you ever used the phrase, it serves you right? I got so convicted over this. Because on the outside, we want to look like everything's, I've got this, forgiven you. But roots of bitterness start with an inward aspect of I'm not pulling for your good any longer. I'm not going to cheer for you on the inside. And so you remind yourself of what they did and you replay it in your mind over and over to stay angry and you root against them so that every time you hear something goes wrong in your life, you go, yes! They deserve it and it makes you feel good because you feel like the currency that they took from you is a currency that they're having to pay back Jesus said you're, you're like a wreath your unforgiveness is twisting you it's taking you from a form that I have created you to be and you're letting the enemy form you into something that you were never meant to be and he weaves you in and out and he takes this, the, the vines of your life and after he's done, you don't even recognize yourself because you have been twisted with this root and it's producing a poisonous attitude that will become septic to your spirit 
and cause you to be ungenerous relationally. Dan Hamilton wrote a book on forgiveness, and any, he talked about a time when he was very close to his wedding day when his fiance suddenly broke it off. And he was devastated. And he began to think of ways in his mind that he might make her feel his pain. And they had been close enough through their engagement time that he knew where the buttons were of her life that he could push that would cause her pain. He knew what he could say to her friends and family that would embarrass her. And these were the things that were roaming through his mind, but he realized that if he didn't do that, if every time he saw her, he didn't react angrily, or he didn't act vengefully, and he wouldn't hurt her, it would cost him a great deal of personal pain because he would then see her moving on and becoming happy by not choosing him. And he said, to choose to do nothing caused me pain. Generosity is like that. This is relational generosity. It, gives, it really gives generously knowing that the pain is going to be yours through it all. If you forgive, it really is generously going to hurt you to let them off the hook because you choose to absorb the pain rather than extract the currency of pain from the one who has wronged you. Hamilton went on his book to say this. Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young girl who changed her mind. I forgave her but it was done in small sums every year. Done whenever I saw her and I refrained from rehashing the past. Done whenever I renounced jealousy and pity when seeing her with another man. Done when I praised her to others when I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, and she never saw them. Pain is the consequence of sin, and there's no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, and that's the love that heals. Every time he refrained and refused to get repayment, he was paying the debt of her wound himself, but it brought him freedom in the long run. So Jesus is saying this. If somebody has wounded you, watch yourself. Watch yourself. The third thing he says in this is this. If a brother sins against you, rebuke him. Now, I admit that when we read this rebuking part, there we're going, there we go. Now, that's something I can do in forgiveness. I've been waiting for this one. Those other two, mm, it's not my style. Rebuking, there, I'm, I've, I've got the gift of rebuke. God has just given that to me. But if you don't compare this word to the parallel passage that's found in Matthew 18, you will completely miss the truth of what Jesus was teaching here. In Matthew 18, verse 15, it says this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over or you have your brother back. So, Scripture clearly indicates to us that the purpose of rebuke is not so that you can stand in front of them and say, you wounded me, you hurt me, and if you don't make it right, then I'm never going to be your brother again. That's completely wrong. You're going, rats. That, that's, I don't like rebuke anymore. It means that you go with an attitude of, this relationship with you means more to me than what you've done. And so I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win my brother or sister back. So I'm coming to you and saying, this really hurt me, but I forgive you because the value of our relationship is more important than the hurt that I've experienced. 
And in order to be able to do that, this is the key. If you've not inwardly forgiven him or her before you go to them, then why are you going? If you've not inwardly forgiven them before you go and stand before them, then why are you going? And what are you hoping to accomplish? Are you trying to get your brother back? Are you trying to bring to them a spiritual reality? That, listen, what you've done here is, is not right, and we're both brothers and sisters in Christ, and as a result of that, I just want you to know, you and me, I've not said a word to anybody else. This is you and me. I want you back, and so I forgive you. Or are you going saying, I just want you to know how deeply you've hurt me, and let me rehash everything that you've done so that you feel bad about what you've done to me. Because if you go with the wrong motive, you'll never win them back because the attitude of this makes all the difference in the world. If you go to somebody to rebuke them and say, you are an idiot, you, you know, I can tell you their first words are not, oh, I'm so sorry. They're going to build a wall of defense. And that relationship will be very difficult after that part in time to ever restore again. And so Jesus says, you're the one that's been hurt. You're the one that's going to forgive. Forgive them before you go to them to talk to them. You see, motivation is everything here. If you confront to seek vengeance, you'll never find reconciliation because they will not lovingly respond in all likelihood. You must inwardly will good for the individual. Don Carson wrote in his book, Love in Hard Places, and this is specifically to the Christian. Listen close. The line between moral outrage for the sake of God and truth and immoral outrage because I'm on the losing side is painfully thin. On the issue, I might be right, but in my heart, I might be terribly wrong because I'm less motivated by the glory of God and justice, and I'm actually out for personal vindication. Saving face and putting a person in their place is revenge to quote passages on justice and to justify the nurtured bitterness of personal injury is for the Christian inexcusable. It's all about motivation. And Jesus says, watch yourselves. So lastly, then, where, where in the world do we get the power to do this? Well, the key to forgiveness comes right after the disciples looked at Jesus when he described all this, and they they said, increase my faith. This is impossible. I don't know how to do this. And, and sometimes we feel just like them. I know I need to do something. I know how serious it is. And, but I don't know if I'm, if I'm capable of doing those things. I don't think I can do it. And fortunately for you, Jesus gave his disciples the answer for how they could do it. And it applies to you and I just as well. And it's found in a parable and a metaphor. First, the parable. And after I say the parable, I'm going to put this in historical context for you so that you can understand it a little better. Let me just paraphrase it. Suppose you were the Lord and you had one of these household servants and they were plowing or looking after your sheep and at the end of the day, would you say to them, clock out, you're now off duty or come over here and sit down with me and relax? Would you at the end of the day thank them and tell them how wonderful it was of them for them to do their job? And Jesus says that would be inconsistent with the way householders work in our culture today. And he looked at his disciples and he said, you know it. Here's what he meant by that. You and I don't know the context of the scripture unless we understand a little bit about the context of their society. Servants in that day that he was talking about were not slaves as you and I think about slaves, which were people that were purchased and were owned by an individual to do specific things. When we think of slavery, that's what we think of. On the other hand, they were not employees like we think of either. 
that had a job to do for a certain amount of hours and they got paid a certain wage for those. There was something different because there was an in-between. These were people that were in debt. If you got in debt to somebody and you couldn't pay your debt, the master had two options. He could throw you in prison and you would rot there because you weren't able to pay your debt or you could work out a deal and by a grace of, an, of, of a master, he would invite you to his house and you would work off the debt as many hours and days or years as it took until you were out of debt and then you were free. The Bible says that could be anywhere up to seven years, but at that seventh year, it couldn't be any longer than that. So Jesus is talking about people who have accumulated debt from an individual who, by their grace, invites them to come back and work for them until the debt is paid off. And Jesus looks at his disciples and said, you would never expect somebody who was working off a debt that they owed you to knock off at the end of the day. It just wouldn't work that way. It wasn't cultural. You would never expect a creditor or the master of the house to say, thank you so much for the kindness of everything that you've shown me today. You would expect it the other way around. You would expect the debtor to go to the master and say, thank you so much for not throwing me in prison when you could have for what I owe you. Thank you for allowing me an opportunity to begin to pay you back the full measure of what I owe you. Jesus says, in that case, those who were classified as servants here were just doing their duty. And then in verse 10, something happens that's really fascinating because in this conversation with the disciples, Jesus turns the tables on them. And in verse 10, he says this. After having them identify with the masters, he then says this. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, including forgive, should simply say we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So here's what's going on. Jesus said it's easy to identify in the one of being the master of people owe you and you're letting them repay. The other side of that is it's just your duty to forgive because you owe me as your master. You owe me. And if you were to look at the context of, of, chapter, of several chapters in Luke, Jesus is constantly comparing Pharisees to true believers. And he says of the Pharisees, basically it comes down to this, he says, the thing that I don't like about the Pharisees is this. They are acting as if they're masters when really they're servants. They're servants acting like kings. And he says, do you see how incongruous that is? They're the people that owe me everything and yet they're withdrawing from other people how much greater they are than them. And he says this, you owe God everything. He created you. He sustains you every second of the day. He holds your molecules together. He lets you breathe. You are not a self-made person. And if you're a Christian, you also know that he redeemed you. He is the king, and you are the servant. And therefore, when in turn you look at somebody else and say to them, I don't know if I'm capable of forgiving you, he says you look at them and say, I can forgive you because I've been forgiven. You are not God. You don't know what they went through. You don't know what they deserve because of what they've done to you. And if you think that you have the right not to forgive others, then you are a servant acting like a king. And Jesus is telling his disciples, when you say to me, oh, increase our faith, I don't think I can do that. He says, you're acting like you're God and you're not. You're created beings and you owe everything. And then he uses this metaphor to conclude with. If you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can do this. Now what he's saying here is he's not talking about the amount of faith 
Jesus is saying is, if you have a smidgen of an understanding of what I have done for you, if you have one ounce of understanding that you are a sinner and in your sin you hurt me, and I paid for it, I didn't extract it from you, you were incapable of it, I paid for it, and if you had one ounce of understanding what I did for you, nothing in comparison in the world of what anybody does to you could hold a candle. And it should be within your ease to look at them and say, I forgive you. And the only way to get out of the incongruity of servants acting like kings is to see the beauty of the king of kings who became a servant. You'll never be able to forgive others their teeny little debts toward you until you see him going to the cross to pay your debt of sin, which was enormous. You will never stop judging people until you see the true judge getting out of the judge's chair and coming down and taking your place as the accused and taking your death sentence and being tortured and killed for what you did to him. And he took the payment. And he absorbed it all. Knowing this, how in the world can we ever judge others without being anything but gloriously relational, generous? How can we hold anybody else at arm's length? There comes a moment within this when Jesus is really kind of saying to them, unless I'm in your life, Unless you let me come in and forgive you, wash away the stains that you can't pay yourself, there's no good enough works in your life that you can repay what you've done to God. He simply says, but if you let me, I've already paid your debt. And as a result of that, when you let me in and you become a follower, I provide the avenue by which you can, though you may not feel it, but you can engage forgiveness saying I'm going to forgive even though I still feel hurt I'll let God deal with that part I'll deal with the obedience aspect so that I can be relationally generous and not close myself off I'm going to ask that you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment if you would please because unless Jesus becomes your life and the reason that you live is to honor him you're going to be vulnerable to living like a wraith twisted and tortured but with Jesus in your life, you're going to be free. And when you're free, you can be generous in your relationships because you won't live in fear of letting people close because they might hurt you because you will learn to live a life of forgiveness. And if that appeals to you this morning, then I would love to introduce you to Jesus. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I've been struggling with this area of forgiveness. And as you were mentioning and as you were speaking the words there was instances or an instance that has come to my mind that I literally have closed the door on and I have inwardly not been wishing them well I've been though outwardly I may look good on the inside I have not been honoring God in the way that I've responded to this and today I need prayer would you just lift your hand nobody's looking around except for me I just yes 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 Maybe you're here today and you've never seen Jesus as a giver. You've seen him as a taker. You thought he was going to take from you fun and take from you life and take from you joy. And, and today you see that he has come to give you life and that more abundantly and to bring healing and health to you. And today, 
if you've never met Jesus as your Savior, if you've never acknowledged what he's done for you and said, you truly are Savior, and now I want to make you Lord. If you're here this morning and that appeals to you, would you just raise your hand so that I can pray with you? Today you're ready to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask that you would open your eyes and that you would stand with me, please, this morning. going to ask our deacons, pastoral staff, if they could please come to the front and prepare themselves for an opportunity to pray with people. I'm going to pray for you as a congregation because there was an outpouring of response as it related to some things going on on the inside. And how many of you know God's an inside God? He, he starts everything in here. And then what works out from that becomes gloriously authentic because it started in here. And if we start from the outside and we try to paint ourselves as looking good and the inside is rotten, it doesn't take much to get the smell of rottenness to come out in the open. Today, God says, I simply want to deal with what is your duty to forgive and the motives of that. And so I'm going to pray a concluding prayer and then I'm going to ask for those of you that would like to have somebody just join you in faith that you would feel free to come and have somebody pray with you this morning. Heavenly Father, by the response this morning, it's obvious that every one of us are in places in our life where there are things that have wounded us. Just being human puts us in a position of, of wounding because none of us are capable of complete holiness. And so, Father, there's different things that we've hidden and sealed in the envelopes of our life. And because we've sealed the envelope, we don't think that it gets out. And, and we think that all of the, as long as I act nice on the outside, that Everything that's sealed in that envelope is okay, and today you're going, no, I want to I unseal the envelope. I want to deal with the motives. I want to deal with the reality of what forgiveness looks like so that those who may have hurt you worst, you no longer wish evil. You no longer say it serves you right, and you no longer fist pump when something bad happens. But you say, I am just like them in the community of sinners and in the community of humanity. And so, Lord, today, we ask that through your help, we would be able to grant forgiveness before we feel it, that we would practice it before we see the reality of it. And yes, even in some cases, Lord, that we would take on the payment and that we would absorb that with your help because you demonstrated that to us by absorbing our sin. So, Lord, from this word today, May we be relationally generous because unless we start there, there will be no other generosity within our life that will be authentic. And so I pray a blessing over your people that they would reach into the power of the Spirit and begin to walk in your capabilities and not theirs. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.